0: Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your presence and I'm absolutely honoured. So hello to everyone from all over the world. It was a beautiful sunny day. And I spent a great time watering my plants. It was fantastic. The flowers in full bloom a little bit early this year, but it's absolutely gorgeous. So thank you very much for joining me today. So today we're going to commence another uh, episode. I'm sure you're all going to love this because every time I do an episode on this topic, uh, people just jump on it. So thank you uh, for your um, loyalty. Today we're going to do... Uh, a start in a series on the episode History of Islam I'm sure every one of you know what the subject is. we've been talking about it for a while, so today we've done Judaism, we've done Christianity. we are going to do the last, the third of the Abrahamic religions and the history of Islam. So, basically, we're going to understand the context, because everyone talks about the theology, no one talks about the context. People think they know the context, it started, God came, and that was it. Uh, the angel Gabriel, but no, there's a context, there's a massive context, and no one ever talks about this context. Everyone says, every, everything in, in in the Arabia was terrible, and Islam came and changed it. That's not true. There's a context to everything. And so we'll get down to it. It's a long series because you know that there's a lot to talk about. Um, And we're going to do an Atwa, all that lies in between. Okay, So Atwa, we're going to understand the currents that form the waves of this religion and the region, the geography, the geology. Um, Please get your paper, pencil and uh, take down notes. So here we go. Islam means submission. By now, everyone has heard about Islam, the religion of peace, or not so peaceful. All depends on how you look at it. To understand the religion, one has to look at the context of the land that produced this religious colonial empire, the empire we have now come to know as Islam. So let's take a look. The story of Islam started well before the religion got underway. It's a story of a family feud that originated before the Prophet of Islam Muhammad was born. A family feud that was institutionalized under the Prophet's name after his death. His legacy and fame married with the political agenda of his fellow tribal members anchored together thereby giving us a religion of or a colonial empire that we have come to know as Islam. It has continued for 1400 years. Its interpretation was used as a blueprint for a violent agenda of its empire to colonize the world. An agenda which clearly institutionalized in its primary scriptures, the Quran and its secondary scriptures, all to ensure power to their Bedouin ruling class. This family feud is what we have come to know as the Shia-Sunni rift. A rift of family feud where each side says submit to me, all sanctioned by a mystic god. There are positives as well as negatives. It's up to you to decide. To begin with the the region, to begin with the region where Islam was born, a region we call today the Middle East. We understand the geological and geographical topography of this region. It is a must to understand this uh, ideology and its history. This region was once a tropical, dense rainforest. After the last cataclysm, approximately 12. Thousand years ago, which would have taken place due to the changes in the axial precession, or what is more commonly known as the precession of the equinox, the climate of the Earth, including the Middle East, changed. According to some researchers, around 8,000 BCE, it came pretty quickly. It, it changed pretty quickly to an Arab desert land within 200 to 300 years. People therefore had to migrate to greener pastures where there was water and agriculture. The three remaining green pastures in this area are the Nile River, the Delta, and the Mesopotam- The Nile River Delta, the Mesopotamian River Delta and the Indus River Basin. A few nomadic tribes remain or who we have come to know today as Bedouin. They would have had to, to clash with each other to control the few oases around the springs and the waterholes that were left in the desert. There were water holes where; these were waterholes where the caravans would pass through as stopovers en route to sell their goods and services. Those who controlled these areas would go on to become very rich. They had power, which eventually would be converted to the power over their respective tribes and clans. The more waterholes they controlled, the more power they had. Alliances would be formed and broken on the basis of this narrative. The more alliances they formed, the more they could spread their control over the region, which would end up being very lucrative. Eventually, there would be internal problems and a power struggle to control uh, this power handle. This would lead to war, a war for survival of the fittest which became a microcosm of the empires to come. Empires were thus created by the clans and tribes who won these internal power struggles. Ideologically, the Bedouin clans followed different faiths. There were Hebrew clans, pagan clans, Christians, local traditional faiths. After the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Christianity spread among the Arab tribes. In 1325, after the Council of Nicosia, Christianity finally became the state religion of the Roman Empire that controlled parts of this region. In Egypt, where the family of Jesus fled after his birth, Jesus the Jesus movement spread from forty two AD onwards. Uh, bought by Saint Mark in Alexandria. To Alexandria. As the Egyptians were slowly bought into the Jesus movement, their lives changed culturally. Their daily customs and rituals changed. Even in death, their burial rituals changed. This means they did not have the same cultural requirements anymore. The goods and services they bought and sold evolved with their new faith and changing customs. One important ingredient required by Egyptians for their burial rituals was a gum or raisin called myrrh. M-Y-R-R-H. It has been used as a perfume, medicine or incense since ancient times. It was supplied to them by the Arab caravan since the plant had produced myrrh was native to southern Saudi Arabia, Oman and Yemen, besides Eritrea and Egypt. Thus the profit from the trade of myrrh was used to buy and sell other goods. Its profits profits thus fermented a robust commerce and trade along the silk route. With Europe and South Asia. Once the Egyptians aligned with the Christians uh, move- and their movements, they stopped using myrrh. Uh, the financial and logistical problems it posed shook the trade in the region. Uh, while there were other goods bought and sold, myrrh was a bi- very big, lucrative part of the commerce of this region. The Arid Desert not producing anything else. In 535-536 f- in AD, a major series of cataclysms, ev- cataclysmic events took place in this region, causing global catastrophic consequences. This was the second factor that affected this region in the last 600 years. Researchers have narrowed the events to volcanic eruptions. While they have not been able to pinpoint where they think, however, the volcanic eruption happened in Karakota, located between the islands of Java and Sumatra in Indonesia. Again, that's a guess. No one really still knows that where it happened, but we know that in 535-536 to 536, there was a major series of cataclysmic events that happened on the planet. Volcanic ash was thrown up in the air that caused a dimming of sunlight, while reducing the temperatures of the planet. Data collected from tree rings and geological research in Greenland confirm this activity. It caused a disruption in crop and food patterns, animal and wildlife patterns, humans to perish all over the planet. This event is said to have caused a major disruption in economic activity on every continent, bringing mighty empires to its knees. This event would be the catalyst for migrations for other tribes and clans all over the world. In 541 and 542, one of the aftershocks of this volcanic eruption was a major plague that shook the region known as the Plague of Justinian. It was a plague that spanned two centuries and affected the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople the capital, the Sassanid Empire, and besides the port cities of the Mediterranean Sea. It resulted in the deaths of 25 million people at the onset and approximately 50 million people by the time it died down. On the Indian subcontinent, the Gupta Empire, which ruled from the 3rd century AD, was brought to its knees in 543 AD. Thus commerce stemming from the Indian subcontinent would be affected. South of, Arabian, of the Arabian Peninsula was the region we call Yemen today. Um... It was known as the Kingdom of Se- Se- Seba or Saba, some, possibly the modern-day Sheba. We call it a very well-developed and powerful kingdom of its time. It was the carrefour of trade and commerce with a vibrant economy, controlling the spice and frankincense caravan trade routes. there existed an ancient dam in the region to collect periodic rainwater uh, and irrigate the region. After the eruption of 546 A.D., changing climatic and rain patterns, the dam burst, and the tribes from the area had to move north to the region of Mecca and Medina. Along with the Justinian plague and the crumbling empires around it, trade and commerce would have come to a virtual standstill. This would have been no different than the global economic effect of the coronavirus uh, carniv- um, of the virus that we have today, the pandemic, um, to top COVID-19. To top it all off, from 551 to 749 AD, history records five major earthquakes in the Levant, which amplified the destruction and the economics of the wider region. Thus the demand for goods and services would have changed the entire logistics of the region. The routes taken by the caravan merchants would have had to be diverted too. Their trade dwindling, their finances tight, there's something like a modern-day recession. Turbulence and chaos would easily have followed. Control of the ever-dwindling trade routes, caravans that passed as well as the waterholes of the region to ensure their survival would have become their prime objective. The more land they controlled, the more they were able to tax the caravans that pass by and and sell their goods. Um, the other major source of wealth ve- for the unemployed of the area was raiding these caravans uh, and all the goods they carried. Um, so procuring their gold, silver, ornaments, and whatever other g- goods these caravans carried, sim- something similar to a modern-day Somali pirate. The chaos that would have ensured would have been created, would have created a never-ending spiral of violence, um, breaking up families and tribes. Remember, in the ancient world, alliances were formed between clans uh, by marriage. When fights broke up for control of the dwindling trade that moved along these regions, it created family feuds between clans as well as internally within a clan or a tribe. One such tribe was the Quraysh, the tribe to which Muhammad the Prophet of Islam was born. It consisted of Jews and pagan Arabs. The Prophet's clans within the Quraysh tribe was called the Hashemat. Um Hashemit tribes after Muhammad the great grandfather. Muhammad's great grandfather, Hashim. That's the Hashmit clan. One of, one, of course, not all people from the Quraysh tribe were part of the prophet's lineage or family tree. The prophet's great-great-grandfather, Abd Manaf, produced two sons, one who was Muhammad's great-grandfather Hashim, and the other, Abd Shams. Abd Shams' lineage would go on to produce a descendant called Umayyah, who would have been the cousin of Muhammad's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. The, this Umayyad line of the Quraysh tribe would go on to produce what we have come today to know today as the Umayyad d- dynasty of Islam. Or Banu Umayyad, or the Sons of Umayyad, uh, Sons of Umayyad. It was this clan who produced the fissure that created the family feud. The feud would, go, would lay the foundation and would go on to create the colonial empire of Islam, camouflage behind Muhammad's name. Umayyad, the founder, had always wanted to be the leader of the, Maha- the Quraysh tribe. However, opposing him was his uncle Hashim, the founder of the Hashimit clan of the Quraysh. So the table was set for the fight between the Hashemids and the Umayyad dynasty. Reality TV at your best, as they say. To get straight down to Muhammad, a descendant of the Hashmid line of the Quraysh tribe, he was born approximately 570 AD. His father, Abdullah, passed away before he was born in 569 AD. His mother passed away around 576 AD. When he was still a small child, he was brought up by his paternal grandfather, to begin with, and then and then by his paternal Abdul, uncle, Abu Talib. The Hashmit line of the family, and especially Muhammad, was the same clan of the Quraysh tribe. Muhammad was known for his gentleness, his moral values, his virtues. He was never violent, well-mannered, never got into a conflict with anyone, never thrifty and trustworthy. Sweet of speech that cascaded like pearls is what they said about him. He could have been the perfect neighbor that everyone always asked for. In 583, his grandfather took him on caravan trips to Syria. There he learned the caravan trade from the age of eight, becoming an expert and well-renowned in his field. Something old Bedouin boys are taught to do even today. Though he made a name for himself, everyone wanted to do business with him. Um, there he made a name for himself and everyone wanted to do business with him. Not much is known of Muhammad during his youth and early adult life besides the fact that his caravan trade took him to far-off places like Syria, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Indian Ocean. He was given nicknames such as Al-Amin, meaning faithful, trustworthy, and Al-Sadiq, meaning truthful. His talent and presence were sought after arbitration in 595 AD his reputation came to the attention of a 40-year-old widow named Khadija who was 15 years older than him he consented to marriage with her which produced five children which some say he had only though some say he had only one daughter and the rest were his wife's children from a previous marriage the marriage was said to be happy uh, a very happy union between Muhammad and Khadija by every Islamic source. One of the many qualities of Muhammad, is, which is very very important to note, is his captivity to have a dialogue. Trade and commerce is carried out by creating bonds between people, reaching out and creating a positive energy field. Muhammad the Prophet was an absolute master at creating that bond. He was able to listen and have a dialogue with people from far and wide. He listened carefully and heard stories from the ancients. He gained knowledge by interacting with them. He thus became a very successful caravan merchant we have come to know today. It was this quality of being able to have that dialogue that rendered him to his wife 15 years a senior, a union that lasted, as we say, until death do us part. He was also known uh, to Islamic sources, as being very reflective, a man he would seek refuge in a cave called Hira, on the Mount Al Jamal Al nur on the outskirts of Mecca, several times a year. In six ten A.D., after, according to Islamic history, one of these those visits, he on one of those visits he was visited by the angel Gabriel, who appeared to him, and com- commanded him to recite verses that were later to be included in the Quran. Surah 96, verse 1. Muhammad, according to Sunni traditions, was, all, was so taken aback that he had to be consoled by his wife and uncle. He did not mention it to anyone else. The revelation stopped for three years. A pause known as the, the Fatra. It later continued. Muhammad's wife was the first to believe his revelations, according, followed by Muhammad's cousins and his uncle. Around 613, Muhammad started speaking in public. Like most people who challenged the status quo, uh, he faced resistance. There, after different interpretations of this time period in Islamic history, uh, there are different time interpretations of this time period in Islamic history. Each sect and school of thought interpreted differently. Muhammad, according to Islam, preached a monotheism that was different from his Meccan forefathers. He condemned idol worship and condemned the traditional religion of the Quraysh tribe. As the band of followers grew, the resistant, resistance and precautions they met from the tribal leaders and ruling class also grew. To avoid the persecution of 1615, some of Muhammad's followers immigrated to a small Ethiopian kingdom whose Christian Emperor gave them shelter from persecution. Again, different schools of thought will interpret this time from different lenses. The majority of Muslims returned to Mecca before migration to Medina and while some sources say others say they went directly to Medina. In 622 CE, in order to escape persecution, Muhammad escaped in the middle of the night, with some followers, um, to the city of Medina, formerly known as Yatrim. This event marks the start of the Islamic calendar. The migration itself is called the Hijra, or Hijri. Uh, It, however, is not mentioned in the Quran, but in later traditions, Islamic traditions. It is said that the majority of tribes of Medina were Hebrews. There were two large non-Hebrew tribes, non-Jewish tribes, who migrated from what is modern-day Yemen, known as the uh, Banu Qajra and the Banu Az. Uh, Earlier, it was the Israelite tribes who ruled the Oasis, but it was taken over by the Arab tribes who received tribute for loyalty and protection from the Jews. Uh, and some of the prominent Hebrews were the tribes over there were the Banu Nadir, Banu Kunayza, and Banu Qurayza. Muhammad is said to have united the remaining Hebrews, Hebrew tribes, under the Constitution of Medina. The three main Hebrew tribes, three other main Hebrew tribes, did not sign the Constitution. Once in Medina, the trouble we see in Islam today begins. Islam means submission, and an Islam that requires you to submit to God. This migration, as mentioned before, is the starting point of Islam. The pivotal moment which gives the basis of the Quran and secondary text, a blueprint for eternal war, a missionary war that we have come to know as Islamic Jihad. Jihad, that is the most important mission of Islam, a mission to spe- spread God's divine m- message all over the earth. It is the third most impo- important principle of Islam. The first being Tawid, the oneness of God. And the second being Al-Wala wal meaning hate what God hates. For non, That's non-Muslims and infidels. The concept of hate is actually a rebranding of an older Arabic concept of loyalty. As in al and disloyalty as in vala bara. So, the concept so loyalty to God, unlike infidels who are disloyal to Him, meaning a necessity of hating or disassociating with them. So, alwala val bara. Um, if you're now questioning why would a good God take a good man like Muhammad, um, propel him in this nasty uh, tribal and barbaric ideology of hate and genocide. Who is this God, or Allah as Muslims call him, that we may take a peaceful and gentle man as the chief promoter of this horribly ignorant and barbaric blueprint for war? Well let's find out if we've got this ideology right, or we are looking at it from the wrong direction. Thus we come back to the Islamic sources. While in Medina, Muhammad spends his time converting uh, the Arabs to Islam and forming an army. Islamic history tells us he tried uh, to convince the Jews that his mission is divine and his revelations are true, uh, and so is the word of God. He even directs his press towards the west in the direction of Jerusalem, although the word Jerusalem never appears in the Quran. The Quran states that the Jews never accept this, uh, his authority and prophecy. He changes his direction of prayer then towards Mecca. He collects his companions and followers and becomes a tribal warlord, a general of sorts. He uses his sword to subjugate people, force them to submit, or kill them. If they refuse, he calls this God's mission. He starts raiding caravans, stealing their produce, their gold, their silver, and their women, and making them his slaves. Then according to his first biography written on Muhammad, Some 200 years after his death, the Surah al-Rasul, he goes from village to village, looting, pilfering and collecting slaves and marrying them. He garners 11 to 13 wives from different groups. Wives that are young as 6 years and subsequent intercourse at 9 years. To a woman um, who was the wife of his adopted son. His adopted son was forced to divorce his wife in order to marry Muhammad. This is a junction a disjunction is where the adoption was supposed supposedly discontinu- discontinued in Islam as a result, millions of Muslims think that Islam does not allow adoption. Now, think for a minute and ask yourself why would a man who was an orphan himself discontinue Islamic adoption? Secondly, why would a man have a happy marriage until the age of fifty do and then go berserk after all. While marrying 11 to 13 other wives in the span of 10 years, including uh, his ex-wife with an adopted son, that's adultery in in the normal world, even in ancient times. This is the behavior of slave owners and shady scums. Does this look like the Muhammad you know? Uh, the Muhammad of Medina. Islam Islam calls it a religion of peace. But wait, look more closely, and you will. Gonna- picture. This weird wife-swapping, adopting-refusing, adoption-refusing, barbarian warfare subjugation of the tribes and tribes of Arabia was part of ten years of Muhammad's lifespan, dedicated to the mission of giving birth to Islam. Submission to God aka blind faith, controlled by the ignorant unemployed tribesmen. To reply to all the question marks out there after for, uh, for the last 1400 years, and especially in today's world, the excuses given are as follows. It is said that Muhammad was reluctant to pick up the sword, but as he was the chosen one, or divinely chosen, he finally accepted the burden of going to jihad. All this to spread the word of Allah. Second, what, what Muhammad did was equivalent, equivalent to preemptive strikes, very similar to the invasion of Iraq. We we knew that Meccans and other tribes were going to come after him and kill him, this to prevent God's word, from the from being there spread from being spread. Hence, he took the decision to attack them first and force them to submit to Islam, the only, and the only true word of God, or Allah. Third reason given attacking other tribes and clans was very normal for the Arab world. It was seen as normal, so there's nothing wrong with it. Fourth, he was forming a grand alliance to finally take over the native city of Makkah and the Kaaba, God's house. Anyone who refused to form this alliance was killed and the sword of the revelations of Allah. Thus you can you can choose any of, of the above reasons you want to or make up your own to camouflage the divinely inspired barbaric colonial escapades of the Prophet of Islam. Whatever makes you happy. Again, we're looking at Islam from the point of view of Muhammad. Uh, from, we're looking at the Islamic point of view, not Muhammad. Some of the few other famous violent escapades of Muhammad are the Battle of Badr, Battle of the Trench, Battle of Banu Nadir, Battle of Quneza, all above being against Jewish tribes. In March of 628 AD, he was he, we have a very important event in Islam called the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Um, briefly, according to the old Arabian customs, during the time of pilgrimage to the annual Mecca Meccan Fair, rebranded by Islam as the holy month of Ramadan, um, fighting between clans would stop. During this time, in 628, Muhammad put on a pilgrim's garb, uh, took approximately 700 men, and set out for Mecca. While the Meccans did not accept the forays of Muslims, uh, there were tense negotiations on both sides, leading to the treaty being signed by Muhammad and the Meccans, which committed both sides to a 10-year truce. This allowed Muslims to visit Mecca for the annual pilgrimage, which, with the treaty preventing any violence. Thus, while they were free from violence with the Meccans, Muhammad's Muslims were free to capture other tribes and oases like the Oasis of Khyber. Uh, given, giving us the famous Battle of Khyber, the Quran, 48, chapter 48, verse 20. Of course, like everything else, this battle is termed as the Holy War and Divine Intervention. Less than two years after the Treaty of Hudabia was signed, it was broken by a long line of bad blood. The battle a battle of historical vendettas between local tribes allied on each side of the conflict. The Muslims then broke the truce to invade Mecca and invaded with a force of 10,000. Muhammad and his Muslim warriors were successful on entering Mecca. He is said to have destroyed um, every one of the 360 idols in the Kaaba while reciting reciting verses of the Quran. In 632 it it is said he made his last trip to Mecca for the annual Hajj pilgrimage. There he gave his last sermon, known as the Farewell Sermon, delivered on Mount Arafat, on the 6th of March, 632 AD, which is interpreted by different groups and scholars in the Hadith and codes, such as Bukhari, Muslim or Abu Dawud. Soon afterwards, Muhammad falls ill and dies a few months later. No one knows the reason. Some sources say it was the Jewish tribes that poisoned him, typical of this ideological group. However, there's no consensus. Sounds familiar to the Christians who blame the Jews for crucifying Jesus Christ. Even before he died, Islamic Hadith say that there was a tussle between two groups of people: Umar ibn al-Khattab and the Ansar on the other side. On one side, on the on one side, uh, besides the, by, besides al-Khattab and Ansar. Were the com- on the other side were the companions of the Prophet. Muhammad is supposed to be so angry that he chased them all away and called for his family. Historical sources say he wanted to write something, but his followers, the Ansar and Umar, did not want him to say um, want him to, saying they have the Quran. It was his grandsons who came to keep him comfort, and his son-in-law Ali, who spent the last hours with the Prophet. Muhammad eventually passes away after giving instructions to Ali and very unhappy and distraught a man. Thus, we come to this junction, the family feud of the Quraysh clan that we talked about at the beginning of the chapter, a feud that was now really blown out of proportion. There are two groups of people who are responsible for Muhammad's body, the Sahaba, also known as the Companions of Muhammad, who were the first to convert to Islam, Uh, something like the Apostles of Christ. The Ansar, also known as the inhabitants of the city of Medina, who took Muhammad and his followers into their homes while he migrated to Yartrib. So I'm going to take a little break over here. I'm going to come back with another episode and we're going to continue with the history of Islam. Thank you very much. Have yourself a great evening.